0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McLarty.
1: Today is the 19th of March, which means three Sundays from now is our homecoming weekend. We are planning to meet, Jeff and Tom and Micah and I, after church today to kind of firm up our plans for what we're going to do for homecoming. We will not be doing a whole weekend of activities the way that we did pre-COVID, but we will be planning something for Saturday evening, just as an opportunity for us all to get together as a group. Resurrection Sunday morning, we will have our communion service. And then afterwards, it would be nice if we had a potluck Afterwards. Not that I believe in luck, which is why here at GCA we call it Pot Providence. And so everybody brings some kind of covered dish, something to share with everybody. But next Sunday I will be able to lay out exactly (coughs) what the plans are for that weekend. Uh, We do have very kindly an offer of an Airbnb house. For you folks on the internet, anybody who will be traveling, it's a first come, first serve kind of deal. The first ones who say to me that they are coming definitely, especially if they know that financially they're going to be helped by not having to stay in a hotel, the first people to lay claim on it will get that. However, it sleeps, what did you say, Jennifer? 10 people? How many bedrooms? Three bedrooms. How many bathrooms? Uh, Two and a half. Two and a half. So we'll be able to put up a couple of different visitors there. So hopefully you can factor that into your homecoming plans. We are talking theodicy. Last week, I defined the word theodicy. It is a combination of two Greek words, theos, which means God, and decay, which means justification or to justify. Basically, it is a justification of the God of the Bible, given in that he is described as holy and righteous and all-powerful. And yet, evil, misery, trouble, pain exists in this life. So how do you reconcile the fact That evil exists in the world that was created by a completely holy God. Last week we were also introduced to the Epicurean Dilemma. Do you remember the Epicurean Dilemma? Epicurus, who was an ancient Greek philosopher, came up with a series of propositions and questions in an attempt to disprove God and disprove the existence of God. The questions of the Epicurean Dilemma basically are, since God is all-powerful, and since he is holy, righteous, and loving, why then does evil exist? Is God willing to prevent evil, but then not able? Well, if that's the case, then he is not omnipotent. Is he able, but not willing? In that case, he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing, then why is evil here? And is he neither able nor willing, then why would you call him God? So that is the Epicurean dilemma, and philosophers and theologians for the last couple of thousand years have wrestled to answer those questions. Last week, what we established is that God is indeed, according to the Bible, described as being a God of all power and of holiness, and the Bible also does admit that evil exists. And so after looking at the Augustinian theodicy and the Irenaean theodicy, we concluded that the only way you can construct a truly biblical theodicy is if you understand that God is completely sovereign. And then I just kind of left that dangling there so that you would all come back this week to find out what I meant by that. Are you familiar with the word Arminian? For the new listeners that we have online and for the new folks in the room, I'm going to take the time briefly to define Arminian because I'm going to use the word Arminianism several times this morning and you need to know what that means. Uh, We are a historically reformed church. What that means is that we hold to the theology that grew out of the Protestant Reformation. John Calvin had a student, Theodore Beza. Beza had a student, Jacob Arminius. Jacob Arminius became convinced that classic Calvinism was not an accurate description of what the Bible has to say. So he started assembling acolytes and students to himself. And even though he admitted that grace was necessary in order to be saved, he also postulated that you could deny that grace from God if you wanted to. In other words, he was such an advocate of human free will that he could make humans responsible for their own salvation by saying that though God wanted to save apparently everybody, that the people who did get saved were the people who took advantage of the free gift that God was offering them, so that God himself was limited in what he could do according to what the will of people would do. In other words, God offered salvation and redemption to absolutely everybody who ever lived on the planet, the difference between the saved people and the unsaved people is that the saved people took advantage of that fact. And they made a conscious decision or they made Jesus their Lord and Savior or they walked an aisle or they said the sinner's prayer. They did something that qualified them for salvation. Well, of course, The Calvinistic contingency disagreed with that, and so there was a synod, a meeting of churches in Dort, Holland. We know that as the Synod of Dort. During the Synod of Dort, they hashed out the five points of Arminianism, the teaching of Jacob Arminius. And they responded to those five points with what we now classically know as the five points of Reformed theology, the Tulip Doctrines. Have I lost anybody yet? No. That was just a quick flyby of church history. So when I say Arminianism, what I'm saying is theology that is based on the free will of human beings in order to decide what God is going to do. In other words, God doesn't know what he's going to do. God can make a plan, but that plan can be at any point thwarted by the free will of his creatures who can decide to do something different, and because they decide to do something different, God has to change his plan. Now, if that is the way that you understand Christianity, if that is the way that you think the Bible teaches Christianity then you cannot properly answer the theodicy question because God cannot make an accurate plan. He cannot know from the beginning what he's going to do because every time he makes a plan, some creature can say no to it or some creature can obligate him to do it. And so it becomes impossible theologically, philosophically, and biblically to create a justification for the fact that evil exists in the world of a holy God, if you believe that that holy God is malleable, that he's changeable. Then you have to ask yourself, well, then if he wants everybody to be saved, if that's his heart's desire is that everybody be saved, why, if he has the power to destroy evil, does he let evil still exist? Why does he put all these roadblocks in the way of people, rather than just let people get saved? The fact that people decide against him is usually based on the circumstances of their lives, the difficulties of their lives. As a consequence, they turn against God. Well, then why did he bring that difficulty in the first place? You see the problem? Arminian theology simply cannot produce a truly biblical or satisfying theodicy. Instead, in order to understand the existence of sin and evil in the world, even though he is a righteous and a holy, all-powerful God, the only way you can understand it is to recognize that God has a plan from the beginning and that the evil and the difficulties (coughs) and the sin of this life are ultimately serving his grander purpose. Does the Bible say that? Well, yes, it does. So we're going to start this morning by reading several sections of the Bible, and we're going to see that God says over and over that he has a plan in what he is doing, and that because he is all-powerful, nobody can thwart that plan, and that ultimately sin and evil is part of the toolbox that God is using in order to accomplish the plan that he determined before the foundation of the world. He's that big a God. He's that grand an architect. He knows what he's doing. Known unto God are all his ways from the beginning. So what is the plan? Well, the plan, I dangled it in front of you last week. The plan is the ultimate glorification of Jesus Christ. That's why everything in creation exists is because God is in the enterprise of glorifying his son. God is in the enterprise ultimately of glorifying himself and so the process of glorifying his son redounds back to his own glory so that through all of future eons of eternity, God himself is worshipped, God himself is glorified, God himself is the center (coughs) of and completion of everything God has ever determined to happen. Have I lost anybody yet? Am I boring you? No. If I'm boring you already, it's too soon. Get out. <laughs> no, I'm not. Okay, so Ephesians 1. Let's start at Ephesians 1. This is Paul's grand treatise to the church at Ephesus. And the first couple of chapters of the book of Ephesians are some of the most Sovereign Gracie theology you're going to find anywhere in the Bible, but it also is going to explain the plan of God for us. I'm going to start reading Ephesians one verse three. "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly places in Christ. Notice how often it's going to say in Christ, through Christ, for Christ. It's just going to say this over and over again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he, God, chose us in him, Christ before the foundation of the world. Does the Bible say that? Does the Bible say that God chose people before the foundation of the world, placed them in Christ? In a moment, we're going to see that that's ultimately for the glory of Christ, for the ultimate glory of God, and he did that choosing and establishing before he made anything. Okay, now in the book of Revelation, we read that Christ is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So God already had a fail-safe plan in place before he made the first people. He already had the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Okay, that Lamb slain is a sin offering, a sin sacrifice, Why did God have a sin sacrifice in place before he made anything? Because he knew there was going to be sin. Because he knew there was going to be evil. He knew that there was going to be a people who needed redemption. And why do humans need redemption? Because of their sinfulness. Why? Because ultimately God's glorification involves taking sinners like us putting us in his own glory, in his own domain, in his own heaven for the purpose of glorifying Christ for all of eternity. So God knew the end game, which is have a people who are going to glorify Christ, and he knew how to get them there, which was to cause them to go through the sin and evil of this life so that they would desperately need a savior, a lamb slain, and he had that lamb slain already prepared before the foundation of the world. We're talking about a big God here. We're talking about a God who knows what he's doing. From the very beginning, he already had the end in place. We just happen to be on that ride right now. Our lives right now are training grounds for eternity, and we are right in the midst of God's eternal divine plan. Here we go again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his own will. Okay, so that just described all of human history. The big plan of God. And God is doing it, according to his own good pleasure. Have you ever thought about when we finally get to heaven, when we finally break loose of this mortal coil, or if we just step from life into life, when we are gathered collectively to God and we are thanking and praising him for what he has done in our lives, God's going to say, it was my pleasure. I did this all according to my own will. I did this according to my own determination. God, I say again, is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And he does it all according to the pleasure of his own will. Why? Verse 6 says that he does this all to the good pleasure of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why we're Grace Christian Assembly. That's why we're SalvationByGrace.org. That's why we believe in sovereign grace theology. Because God himself is glorifying his own grace. He is demonstrating his grace to people like us, measly, little, stupid, little, slimy, little, slimy, I went with slimy, little sinners like us those are the people that he chose before the foundation of the world in his son, placed us in his son so that we will ultimately be glorified in his heaven, standing in his presence forever. He did that all according to his own will and his own good pleasure so that he could glorify that characteristic of himself that is grace and all grace. Remarkable. By the way, let me add. If you're able by your will, by your own determination, to obligate God and make him save you, is that grace? No, That's not grace. That's a debt. That's God paying you what he owes you because you did whatever the thing was that obligated him. But if it's truly, genuinely grace, you can't deserve it. Most of us have spent most of our lives trying not to deserve it, demonstrating that we don't deserve it. But that's the astounding marvel of God's grace. And he is controlling all of human history to bring about the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed upon us in the beloved, in Christ in his Son. It's all about Christ. Christianity is Christocentric. Christ is at the middle of it. Christ said that he is the beginning and end of it. I'm the Alpha. I'm the Omega. He is the beginning. He is the middle. He is the end of it. It is all about Christ. And we are being saved to the glory of his grace, which he so graciously bestowed on us, In the Beloved One, in Christ Jesus. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of His grace. That verse has a contrast in it. You are the transgressor. You are the sinner. You are the one who don't deserve the glory of God. And yet, despite your transgressions, Christ was willing to shed his blood for the forgiveness, the complete forgiveness, the utter eradication of your sins and your transgressions. And he did it all by the riches of the glory of his grace. So, God, in the process of glorifying himself, is also forgiving you so that he ends up with all the credit, all the glory, all the thanksgiving eternally and he's doing all of that for the glorification of his son in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace which he caused to abound to us (laughs) I love Paul's language. I love Paul's writing. Because a moment ago, I worked really hard to get you to understand that grace is something that you can't possibly deserve. You don't deserve grace, and in fact, you have done everything you can to make sure the grace of God is not sufficient for a worm like you. But then Paul takes the time to talk about the abundance and the abounding of the riches of God's grace. So let me ask you a question. Because I've known people through the years who have said things like, well, I understand that grace stuff. I understand that you're talking about God's grace, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know the depth of my depravity. You don't know the stuff that goes on in my head. You don't know the darkness of my heart. You don't know. Yeah, I may not know. God knows. God gets great glory out of saving great sinners. And his grace to you is so abundant and so rich and so abounding that it completely overwhelms the darkest of sinners. It's astounding. But that's how people get saved, by God determining it before the foundation of the world, sending his son to die for the people he has chosen and written in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world, and then the abounding grace of God and the sufficient blood of Christ covers all our transgressions and sins, And then he causes his grace to abound to us in all wisdom and insight. Okay, so why do you know what you know? Here, I'll put that another way. Anybody here ever sit down and read the Bible and went, (laughs) I don't get it. (laughs) What is that? I did. There was a time in my life when I could sit down and read the Bible and I couldn't make hide nor hair out of it. I had no idea what was going on in that book. Now I'm standing up here expositing it, preaching it, exegeting it. Is that because I got smart? No. No, anybody who knows me knows I'm not this bright. Jeff raised his hand. He's testifying. Yeah, meet me on a Tuesday someday, and you'll go, this guy's kind of a dumb guy. So why is it that you know what you know? How is it that you're able to open the Bible and get the kind of comfort that you get out of it now? Why is it that you're able to read the Bible and it comes alive for you now? Why is it that you're able to sit down with the Word of God and find everything necessary to get you through this life? It's because the abundance of God's grace has abounded to you in the wisdom and the insight necessary for you to understand the divine plan of God since before the foundation of the world. And even if you don't fully (coughs) comprehend it, at least you can see your place in it and it gives you tremendous comfort to know that the God who has all power who is all holy is also the God that holds you in his hand the God who knows the number of hairs on your head easy in my case right Zeke the one who knows everything about you the one who has written you on the palm of his hand the one who has your name in the Lamb's book of life once you understand those things that is the phenomenal grace of God that has allowed you to know those things and he has caused us to abound in all wisdom and insight and what does that result in verse 9 making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ again he's glorifying Christ that's the plan from the beginning the glorification of Christ now he's going to state that emphatically verse 10 for an administration of the fullness of the times in other words when God wraps it all up when God has finished all the work he's doing and we reach the fullness of all the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heaven and things on the earth in Christ. So there's a plan. That's why time exists. I heard somebody say years ago, I always liked the phrase, uh, God invented time so that everything wouldn't happen all at once. But the truth is, time exists because God's divine plan of glorifying his son allows for the passing of time during which people are going to fall, people are going to sin, people are going to encounter the evils of this world, people are going to desperately need a savior. That savior is going to redeem those people, utterly pay for their sinfulness, for their transgressions against God, for their rebellion. They are ultimately going to die, And then they are going to be glorified, and they are going to stand forever in the presence of God. And that is what he is calling the summing up of time. The administration of the fullness of time that is all summed up, all completed. Everything, all things are completed in Christ. Things in the heaven, things on the earth, in Christ. Verse 11, in him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. So why does God do everything? All things. So it says all things. Mm -hmm. So how many things are left out of all things? Nothing. Everything. He is accomplishing everything according to the purposes of the one who does everything, according to the counsel of his own will, and it is all summed up in Christ. The things in heaven and the things in earth are all summed up in Christ. So now we have some insight into what the big plan of God is. The big plan of God is the glorification of his son. Everything he does, everything that exists, everything in the creation exists for the purpose of leading us to the glorification of his son. Someday when we're standing in heaven glorifying the son, praising the son, basking in the fullness of God's grace we're going to know we didn't do it. We're going to know that it wasn't our will, it wasn't our flesh, it wasn't our determination, it wasn't our hard work, it was all the glory of God's grace. And, by the way, long as I'm raving about it, if it is all to the glory of the purposes of God's grace, if God is busy glorifying his own grace, then don't add anything to that. Don't add your work. Because all the time that you're trying to add you to it, you're diminishing the grandeur of the perfection of the completion of God's grace. And yet, church after church, preacher after preacher, theology after theology, will try to tell you what you got to do in order to establish God's grace in your life. No! That's diminishing the grace of God. And by the way, Any God that I can obligate, measly little silly little me, any God that I can make do my stuff, ain't much of a God. I don't need that God. I need the God who is able to save a wretch like me. Amazing grace. A few minutes ago, Micah read Colossians 1. Turn there again. Colossians 1, I'm just going to read verses 15 to 20 because it's going to say the same thing. God is in the enterprise of glorifying his son. Colossians 1, starting at verse 15. And he, Christ, is the icon, the image, the one-for-one copy. He is the image of the invisible God he is the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things have been created by him And for him. Look at that verse very closely because this is the same Paul who said, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. This world has had various kings, various kingdoms, various human beings who have ever. Ruled over groups of people on this planet. Every one of them have ultimately died and will stand before the judgment. So whether you're talking about the kings of the earth or whether you're talking about the spiritual dominions and the spiritual principalities, whether you're talking about the prince of the power of the air or the fact that the kingdoms of this world are under the hand of Satan, whichever group you're talking about They were all made, according to verse 16, created by him. Everything in heaven, everything in earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, those are not always good things. Those are oftentimes very bad things. All these things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist or hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place, dominion in everything. That's pretty plain. The purpose for which God is doing things is the glorification of his Son, The fact that everything exists and everything was made by him, for him, through him, ultimately is for the purpose of his glorification, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ. That's a purpose statement. That's why he made everything. He made everything so that in Christ is the fullness of everything he made. And through him, through Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross of Christ. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Okay, so what is the purpose of God according to what we've been reading so far this morning? The glorification of Christ, that is the purpose for which everything exists. The Bible keeps saying it. Philippians 2, I'm going to read verses 9 to 11. Philippians 2, starting at verse 9. For this reason also, God highly exalted Christ... And bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That means the authority that is above every authority. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, that's a purpose statement. Every knee is ultimately going to bow to Christ. Because God is in the enterprise of glorifying Christ. But when every knee on earth, above earth, under the earth, that's absolutely every created being, when they all are forced to bow the knee to Christ, that is all going to be to the glory of God the Father. God, in glorifying himself, is glorifying his son. That's the ultimate purpose for why you even exist. Now, considering that God is all powerful, do you think that's going to happen? Yeah, that's going to happen. Why is it going to happen? Because God is going to make sure that his son gets all the glory. It's said repeatedly in the Bible, we should have no question about what God's ultimate plan is. So, knowing all of that, here is my response. I think the biblical reformed response to the Epicurean Dilemma. The existence of evil really only makes sense from the perspective of God's sovereignty. If God is waiting for people to decide things, then the existence of hindrances, stumbling blocks that keep people from being saved, why would those things exist if he's waiting for people to decide and if he truly wants everybody to be saved? Those stumbling blocks exist because God is the one doing the picking and choosing. But if he is the sovereign of the universe, then everybody and everything that he does is leading inescapably toward the ultimate goal of glorifying his son and then glorifying himself. It's exactly like Romans 8 says. You should know this by heart by now. But Romans 8, starting at verse 28, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose. How many things work together? All things work together For those who love God, because it is leading toward his ultimate plan, his ultimate good, the ultimate glorification of his son. And then listen to how exacting this plan is. Because those who he foreknew, by the way, that does not mean that he knew things about you. It means he knew you. It means that he had a relationship, an intimate relationship with you. And he did it before you were ever born. And those that he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Wow, that's a tough one. Because if you know anything about me, and if you know anything about Micah, then you know we're not like Christ. And yet this lifetime is the process of God by his own predestinary will and grace forming us into chopping away at us, cutting away at our sin and selfishness and ego and forming us into the image of his son, the divine one, the holy one, the eternally righteous one so that Christ would indeed be the firstborn among many brothers he is the preeminent one he is the top one and we are his brethren we are his brothers and those that he foreknew those that he predestined those are the ones that he called and those that he called he also justified and those that he justified those are the ones that end up glorified all I'm trying to prove is God knows what he's doing And God had a plan from the beginning, and that plan, according to the Bible, was established before the foundation of the world. Are you tired of hearing me say that yet? Because God knows what he's doing. He has a blueprint. (laughs) He has a plan. He is in the process of glorifying his son. And if that is the fact, then everything in this lifetime, including evil, including sin, including the troubles, the trials, the difficulties, the pains of this life, all of that is leading inexorably toward that ultimate goal. As I said last week, The evil and sin of this world is a tool that God is using in order to accomplish the goal of glorifying His Son. Here, I'll put it easier for you. Put it easier for you? What a bad sentence. Here, I'll make it easier for you. Satan. You familiar with Satan? Satan falls. Uh, We read about it in the Old Testament in Isaiah. He gets lifted up in pride. And he says, I'm going to place my throne in the place of the north. I'll be worshipped like God. Why didn't God just eradicate him at that moment? I mean, we read in the book of Revelation that he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. We know that ultimately he's going to end up in the place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. So God knows from the beginning that he's going to need a place called the lake of fire because the devil and his angels are going to end up in it. God knows all that. So why, when Satan rebelled, didn't God put him immediately in the lake of fire? He He has a purpose for him. That's why he's still around. That's why he's still going about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour because God still has a purpose for him. We're going to continue talking about that as we talk about biblical theodicy. In fact, turn to the book of Habakkuk, and this is the way that we're going to finish the morning. We're going to finish the morning in the the little minor prophet in the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk. Some people call him Habakkuk. I'm going to say Habakkuk because that's the way I grew up. Fascinating story that includes a theodicy, and this helps us to develop a biblical theodicy. Habakkuk 1, first verse, right at the beginning. The oracle that's a word that means the burden or the heavy load that Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Yahweh, O Lord. How long will I cry for help, and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, and yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, The law, your law, is ignored, and justice is never upheld, for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Okay, so Habakkuk launches right in with asking God, why don't you do something about the wickedness in Israel? I'm looking at my own people, and I see that your own law is not upheld. I see that there is wickedness everywhere that is engulfing the righteous and your own justice is being twisted and perverted and contorted and I see it everywhere. I cry to you, violence, and yet you don't do anything about it. Why don't you do something, God? God starts answering in verse 5. Look among the nations, that's the goy, that's the Gentiles. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days that you would not believe even if I told you. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who marched throughout the earth "...to seize dwelling places which are not their own. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and their authority originate within themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence." Their horde of faces moves forward, and the collective captives are like sand. They mock at kings and rulers. Those are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress, and then they heap up rubble to capture it. And then they will sweep through like the wind and then pass on. But they will be held guilty, they whose strength Is there God? Okay, this is astounding. So here's Habakkuk starting to say, Okay, God, why aren't you doing anything about the evil? There's evil everywhere. Why don't you do something about it? God says, Just watch me. I'm going to bring on them more evil. What? I'm going to bring on them the Chaldeans, a people notorious in their strength and their horses and their armies who wipe out whole cities, who wipe out fortresses, who take down kingdoms. I'm going to bring them down on my Israelite people. In other words, my people who have my law, who have broken my standards of justice, I'm going to bring more evil on them to punish them for their evil. That's not what Habakkuk saw coming. Habakkuk was like, wait, wait, um, how is that justice? And of course, God started by saying, I'm going to do something that you're not even going to believe, even if I told you about it. And then he proceeds to tell him about it. I- I'm going to bring more evil people down on my evil people. Chapter 1, verse 12 then says, this is Habakkuk now arguing with God and saying, Now wait, now wait. I know you're the one that is in covenant with Israel. I know you're the one that has made promises. You've given us prophets. You've given us the law. And you've made us the Abrahamic covenant. We're that people. So he says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? In other words, you you don't change. You're from everlasting. So therefore... We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge. And you, O Rock, have established them to correct us. In other words, he's saying, this is what your prophets have already said. This is what your word already says. I know you're bringing about these terrible people on us, these armies that are going to overwhelm us. But I understand that you're doing it to correct us and to judge us because, verse 13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who are dealing treacherously? And why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those who are more righteous than they are. Habakkuk is truly, genuinely wrestling at this point. But wait, you're the God that doesn't change, and you've chosen us as your people. You're a holy, righteous God, too holy to approve of evil, too holy to even look on wickedness with favor, and yet you're looking on the Chaldeans with favor by bringing them down on us in order to punish us. Habakkuk doesn't understand it. How can this be the way that God works? Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. He comes to this, and I think this is an astounding bit of wisdom. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what God will speak to me and how I might reply. When I am reproved. See, he knows God's about to correct him. He knows he's been asking questions of God and saying, How is this the way you are? This makes no sense to me. And then he ultimately says, I'm just gonna stand here. I'm just gonna stand my ground. I'm gonna wait for God to explain this to me. And in verse two, God does. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets. That the one who reads it may run, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come, and it will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous, or the just, will live by faith. Now you know that phrase, the just will live by faith. That is the phrase that Martin Luther himself was converted by. When he came to realize that it was not going to be his Catholic works that were going to get him saved. He understood that it was that justification was going to be a result of faith in the finished work of Christ. Paul certainly picks that up, imports it into the New Testament as the foundation for his theology of salvation by grace through faith. But when it is said here in Habakkuk, it is God who is saying it within the context of saying to Habakkuk, you're proud in that you're asking me what I'm doing. In other words, shut up. I'm God. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And the proud one, his soul is not right within him. Last week, we read Paul saying, you're going to say to me then, why does he yet find fault seeing as how no one resists his will? And Paul's answer is, who are you? Who are you to reply against God? Where did Paul get that idea? He got it from Habakkuk. Because God said, you stand up here and ask me these kind of questions. That means you're proud, and that means your soul is not right within you. But the righteous one, the one whose soul is proper and healthy within him the righteous one lives by his faith which means trusting in everything God has said everything God is doing trusting that God has got this all handled that's what righteousness looks like so God is warning the prophet against the pride of human beings that try to question God about his activities and his decisions okay so then the rest of chapter 2 God pronounces five woes against the Chaldeans. In other words, the very people that he's going to use to punish his people, he's then going to punish those people for punishing his people. But it's the same God you find in Isaiah 10, who called the Assyrians down on Israel and then punished the Assyrians for the pride with which they attacked Israel. So this is a really, really, really sovereign God. So God pronounces five woes against the Chaldeans. They're going to have to answer for their own pride and their violence. God is a righteous judge. Then God points out that we need to wait for him to speak to us and not for us to speak against him. Here's what it says. Chapter 2, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent. Before him, As long as God is in his holy temple, he's doing what he wants to do. He's doing everything according to his own good pleasure. We've read that several times now. And the rest of us who don't understand it, who don't get it, who don't comprehend it, who don't like it, who object to what God's doing, God's answer is, stay silent before me. I am in my holy temple. I am in control of my creation I've got it handled. If you want to be righteous before me, trust me, because the righteous live by faith. Okay, so that takes us to chapter 3 of Habakkuk, which contains a truly beautiful psalm that we won't get into at this moment. But then Habakkuk 3.16, Habakkuk writes, I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound of my lips, they quivered. And decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for this day of distress, the one that God said, it's coming, it's surely coming, it's absolutely coming, but Habakkuk realizes he needs to just be quiet about it and trust God. I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people who arise will invade us. Why is he so sure of that now? Because God has already said, wait for it, it's coming, it's going to happen. And then he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and even if there are no cattle in the stalls, in other words, he's saying, even if it gets bad, and it's going to. When the Chaldean armies get here, it's going to get bad. And he says, even though all of that happens, there's no food, there's no flocks, there's no cattle, even though, verse 18, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And he has made my feet like hinds' feet, and he makes me to walk on the high places. Because he's holy and righteous, whatever he does, whatever God does, is thereby holy and righteous. We don't get to question him, we don't get to question his ways or his motives or any of the things he does. All we can ultimately do is admit that he's right. All we can do is say, yes, sir. It all serves a purpose. He is sovereign. Even sin and evil serve a purpose of glorifying Christ. And if it doesn't serve that purpose, then it wouldn't exist. Habakkuk is a perfect demonstration of a prophet who wrestles with God explaining what he's going to do. And the prophet is supposed to write it down so that people know it's coming. God told you in advance this was coming. And Habakkuk really wrestled with it. And ultimately learned to just be quiet before God. That God is going to take care of it. And that the righteous live by faith. The questioners, the arguers, their attitude, their soul within them is not right before God. So... The advice is, be quiet, trust that God is God, know that he's going to take care of it, even when this world and this life seems to make no sense. Remember, God is all-powerful, he is all-holy, he is sovereign, he is in charge of everything, and that is why these bad things exist. Next week, we're going to look at several more examples in the Bible of God himself producing bad stuff in life In order to accomplish his ultimate will, so that we have a better sense of the fact that sin and evil are just tools that God is using for his own glorification and the glorification of his son. You get it? God. Do you get it? Yes, sir. Do you really get it? Well then worship that God.
2: that when God, in his plan for salvation and redemption, that he works it in accordance to his good pleasure, his kind intention, his goodwill, his purpose, uh, that these are not things that he does reluctantly. These are things he takes pleasure in demonstrating his goodwill. His, he's not stingy with his grace. He lavished it upon us, and uh, that is just speaks to the type of God that we serve that he does this according to his good pleasure and his good purpose and what a God we serve I wanted to I had this verse in my mind I just wanted to share it with you Micah 7 8 who is a God like you who pardons wrongdoing and passes over rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession he does not retain his anger forever but he delights in mercy I love a God that delights in mercy. That's just the type of God that we need.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.